Welcome to the Leading with Data podcast, your show where we cover the intersection of data, analytics, trends, strategy, and so much more to drive results. This podcast is brought to you by Molecula and Oracle. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Leading with Data, the show where we look at the intersection between data, strategy, leadership, and the future. And I am so incredibly excited. I have been looking forward to this interview since the very first time I heard about this gentleman. And wow, have I learned a ton about it since then. And you are going to love hearing his story. With me today is the one and only Sanjay Hoonan. Sanjay, welcome to the show. Jason, it's an honor and a pleasure to be with you. I got a chance to Google about you before this, and I know it's our first time meeting in this virtual fashion. Uh, it's a delight, and thank you for having me on your show. Well, thank you, and I've had the pleasure of seeing you on TV, so I know you know how to make it happen, so this is going to be easy for you. <laughs> Look forward to the discussion. So as we get into the conversation, you know, Sanjay, would you mind, let's sort of start from the present, and then we'll go into the past. Would you mind sort of sharing what your current role is now, because I know you have a lot of responsibilities. And then we would just love to go back and hear how you got into this role, because it is so interesting. Uh, thank you, Jason. Yeah, I am currently CEO of VMware. VMware is uh, the sixth largest software company in the world. We're about 11 billion in revenue. One of those pioneering companies that invented a part of uh, the infrastructure stack called virtualization. The VM and VMware were started out a research of a wife and husband team, Dan Green out of Stanford University, to save enormous amount of energy in data centers by doing in software, which was more expensive than hardware. And from that invention of a virtual machine spawned this company has become one of the most incredible companies in infrastructure. Uh, so I'm CEO of the company, my responsibility is I run all the front office revenue pieces of it. Uh, most of my life though, I've been in more product and engineering jobs. Actually more recently, only 30% of my time has been in these sales and marketing roles. Um, prior to, to VMware, um, I was at SAP and I was present there in charge of many of the product groups. I uh, did some go-to-market part, but most of my time there was building out the analytics products um, and some of the database-related uh, products, mobile. I did a number of, of assignments there. Uh, and, you know, between SAP and VMware, that's actually pretty much 15 of my last, uh, you know, 25, 27 years in IT have been in those two companies. And I feel very fortunate because one is the best apps company, I think, and one is the best infrastructure company. So I learned a lot, um, you know, just working way back to make it very quick. So it's not uh, overly long. Um, I came to this country as an immigrant at age 18 uh, on a scholarship to Dartmouth College. I'd never knew, you know, where Hanover, New Hampshire was. I remember taking that bus uh, from Boston Logan up to New Hampshire. I was very fortunate to get a scholarship uh, you know, I grew up in a middle income, lower middle income uh, family in India. So there's no way I could have afforded to come to the U.S. if it wasn't for that scholarship. Uh, but once I finished my computer science at Dartmouth, I came out to Silicon Valley to work at Apple. And I've been in Silicon Valley ever since, except for two years where I went back to go to business school. And I just feel very, very fortunate and blessed because my story is a story of an Indian American immigrant who has come here and everything about the American dream, where if you work hard, uh, practically anything is possible is kind of the testimony of my life. Uh, I love that. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. And, and, you know, you've had this sort of broad experience across data and so forth. So I'm, I'm super curious about this question. What is the biggest data-driven breakthrough 
that you've had in the last few years? Because you've really had a sort of a front row seat to so many breakthroughs and innovation. What's the biggest data-driven breakthrough you've had in the last few years? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been an analytics and a data guy most of my life. So I've been tracking this and, and you know, my master's uh, at Stanford was in operations research and optimization algorithms. When I was an undergrad at the Dartmouth, and I, you know, it was the late 80s, early 90s, um, we were very interested in artificial intelligence uh, in optimization algorithms, things that could help you do things. But we were thinking from an algorithmic fashion. And most of the research at that time uh, was towards this notion, okay, think back to it in the 1990s, of a self-driving car or something that was automated. And no one even thought that was possible. So a lot of my classmates who went on to do masters and PhDs at Carnegie Mellon, who's had a very, they've had a very good AI program, we're building technology that now is, of course, everyone thinks about as mainstream inside Teslas and the future of, of uh, you know, GM and other cars. But at that time, you know, that was like research people were because the compute resources or the ability to do that in a uh, fashion uh, in the car and then communicate to the cloud and algorithms and all of the, the hardware needed to do that in a much more commodity fashion was not something was available. Uh, the second aspect that became started to become very commonplace, and that started to take off in the 90s, was the applicability of AI and big data and analytics to retail type of problems. And I think two companies, both Amazon and, and Netflix, really pioneered the ability to do simple things like, you know, recommend a next product. There was sort of these basic algorithms that were built, uh, collaborative filtering algorithms from MIT and a variety of others that 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 um, you know, Amazon built. And you know, if you think about the early days of Amazon being able to recommend the next big book or Netflix being able to recommend the next big movie, the research that was done out of that, I think was really seminal to now, of course, much of what is very mainstream in e-commerce and retail. Uh, so I think we're living in the day of artificial intelligence and machine learning, defining almost everything that makes our life more productive. Uh, and now Google's at the center of doing some incredible stuff, whether it's the way in which you drive. I mean, I was amazed. Now, some of it's not just AI. There's also human-mediated steps. But if you think about Google Maps, I was, uh, you know, having to make a couple of trips uh, to visit uh, an aging part of our family in Reno. Uh, so I've been driving to Reno, to, to Tahoe in Reno, you know, last few weekends, three, four hours. And I'm amazed every time I think of Google Maps, there are aspects and innovations that are slowly being added. Uh, I was driving and it told me there is a object in the road ahead of you, okay? Someone had blown on his tire, but because not just the AI, but the ability for crowdsourcing of information into this, it's making our driving experience a lot better. Oh, there's a speed trap ahead of you. I mean, this is the world of where the companies who own information, whether it's just the, the casual aspect of driving or the future of healthcare, genome, medical sciences is all going to be driven from big data and analytics and AI. And that topic that really got me started and excited in the 90s now is really becoming mainstream in so many different uh, industries. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's sort of gone from sci-fi to reality. <laughs> right. And, you know, the, the Netflix example you gave and the recommendations piece, you know, we do a lot of, we do behavioral research uh, at the Center for Generational Kinetics. And so we're looking at how humans think about those recommendations. And we look at that by generation. And what's fascinating is the younger you go, the more they trust those recommendations. And when you get down to Gen Z, they don't remember a time before there was a recommendation. So to them, that's always been how they got their next bit of that's content. So true. Right. That's so, true. so so it's weird if there isn't a recommendation. Right? Yeah. No, I I think my kids who are my kids are, are you know, my twin boys are um, you know, 10 and my my daughter is 14. They they live in a different generation where they expect to be able to Google everything. 
get mm -hmm. recommendations naturally as part of what they're doing in Google and Google search mm -hmm. uh, and in Netflix or Disney plus or whatever have you. Yeah, it's becoming a mainstream part of our society. Yeah, it's incredible. My, my daughter's uh, nine years old. Her name's Raya. And you know, she, her favorite thing right now is TikTok and Roblox and some of these. But she just turned in some work because we're doing distance learning. She's in fourth grade. And so she's home right now. And she just turned in her project, which she made herself on Google Classroom, built it in Google Slides. She built it in English and in Spanish and with animation. She presented it. She recorded it. She made sure that everything was uploaded. And she never asked us for help. Something. In fact, we were like, how do you do some of this? <laughs> yeah. And she's not. I had the same experience with that kids producing <laughs> amateur iMovies. And I was yes. like, man, how did you produce this? Oh, it's all there in iMovie. And I, the, the tool has a lot of it. They're just so sophisticated. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I almost think like the day and age of a book uh, or paper magazine, they're going to expect uh, everything to kind of zoom and pinch. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, you know, get that type of response, they, they're going to think it's like, hey, you're in the dark ages. Why would you even want something that's on paper? Everything's digital. Yeah. And, and it's so neat that you were there to see so much of that technology come together and even the bigger pieces of it. So sort of going from that, what do you, what is an unexpected or unorthodox opinion that you have about data or the future of data? Is there anything that, that maybe you're a, sort of a maverick on? <laughs> I'd love to hear that. I mean, I, I, I would say my hope, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I may have probably a lot of Maverick uh, opinions, but I, I, let me give you a little bit of my hope, right? If you look at the, the big things that have been solved uh, in decades, right? We're in the year 2020. And I think 2020, of course, because of the pandemic is going to be remembered very much by that. But I was at Davos, uh, World Economic Forum in 20. This is the last time I was actually on a plane where I went to Switzerland for the World Economic Forum. Uh, and of course, we, we weren't thinking about, I mean, COVID had already started, but we weren't thinking, it was the top of mind. So I was being asked on a panel there by a bunch of other economists, well, what, what do you think is the big things that happened in 10 years? I said, well, look back at the last 10 years in the 2007 timeframe. So the year 2000, 2010 will be remembered as the decade of the mobile phone. Because when the iPhone came, that launch and everything that Steve Jobs brought to that, I mean, the mobile phone existed with smartphones like BlackBerry, but iPhone changed everything. Uh, I think 2010 to 2020 will be remained for the early forms of cloud computing and some of these early forms of, of, of self-driving cars um, and, you know, uh, ride sharing, things of those kinds that have made these economies and a huge computing and computer science breakthroughs, but important ones, right? Cloud computing is a very important one. I hope in the next 10 years that the application of data will solve some of these diseases. Now, the vaccine piece of it's not a very complicated one to solve. I mean, it's a matter of time. Uh, but, you know, when you think about Alzheimer's, when you think about various forms of cancer, some of these things that have been taking a long, long time to fall, I fundamentally believe at the core of it, they are software, AI, and big data analytics problems. And, you know, kind of for me, my hope is that if you've had a loved one who's struggled with dementia or Alzheimer's or unfortunately has died to cancer, um, you know, we want to prolong life as long as we can. I mean, ultimately, we all die. But to the extent that we can grow life expectancy and also save pain of a lot of people who have had to deal with these diseases and the end of their life is so painful. Uh, I hope that the big data and analytics applied to DNA sequencing, genome, all of these things that make life better. Being able to drive a, a self-driving car is great. I mean, it'll help you probably get to work faster, better, safer. That's all good. And we'll certainly save lives for sure in some places. And we'll debug some of the places where there are accidents. But being able to, to save a life from some of these medical uh, diseases that have haunted 
you know, for thousands of years will be major. And I think we're on the cusp of it. And my hope for the next 10 years, this is what I said at the World Economic Forum, is these techniques that have been used for many of the other people, buying a better product, recommendations, those are all good. Uh, but I hope it's now applied to save lives. Yeah, and, and what gets me excited about that, you know, we happen to work a lot in the diagnostic space, is, is breakthroughs like that truly have a global impact. And, and to me, that is incredibly exciting because if we can bring therapeutics, if we can bring all kinds of different treatments to parts of the world that don't really have an economical treatment, let alone a treatment that, that works very well, uh, I think that is going to be dramatic. And I get way more excited about that personally, uh, you know, when you're, when you're able to save lives and save lives in parts of the world uh, where maybe the quality of life isn't where they would like it to be. And certainly where I don't think anybody would like it to be. And so being able to really help them is, is so incredibly inspiring for me. Our family, unfortunately, we've had lots of challenges um, mm. with cancer and, and lost a lot of relatives. So mm. that one strikes very close to home. Uh, but for me, using sort of big data and AI and you know, machine learning and, and really leveraging the power of the cloud to be able to solve some of these, you know, frankly, intractable problems yeah. that have plagued us forever uh, and, and change the quality of life. I think that's oh, so sure. exciting. Yeah, and, no, absolutely. You know, and, and also on the education side, where I get really excited, we're doing a lot of work in the spaces being able to come up with individualized learning, mm. being able to, to truly deliver what an individual needs at exactly the right time to develop their skills and talent and abilities. And, and where I think there's a huge missing link and get fired up about is on the motivation side, That's not right. just teaching skills, but teaching, uh, helping to teach things like resilience mm-hmm. and, and the, an attitude, you know, all, all the sort of things that, that we want to help people and be able to deliver in a highly personalized way that mm. you simply can't do right now, but mm. it is coming. And, and I get, just really fired up about that. Partly because I have a nine-year-old, so I hope she benefits from it. <laughs> it I'm soon. equally fired up, Jason, because I've got kids, like I said, a twin 10-year-old boys and a 14-year-old. And the next generation, I hope that technology, I mean, I, I'm always worried about the amount of time they're spending on devices because, and now with virtual learning, they're spending even more time from computers. Mm-hmm. Kids are not made to be spending all their life in front of a computer. We do need to allow them to be outdoors and learn in more settings that are open and hopefully post the pandemic that will return. But I hope the technology that does influence their lives uh, for the first time they drive or the first time they shop, the first time they do anything where they just almost are starting to see this uh, big data analytics and AI uh, helping them get better um, is good. And then my hope also for many of these folks is that they will enter, uh, you know, I'm not you know, everyone is not made to be computer science, but I do think STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, math is super important that our next generation learn and learn well And everybody. I don't care if you are ultimately going to become an artist, a musician. We have to encourage the next generation to learn STEM. Uh, I mean, I obviously got excited about it and then became an engineer. And my career has been very heavily involved in the engineering, math and sciences. But I think it's super important that that every part, and if we don't do this, uh, I speak partly as an American, because that's who I'm a citizen of the United States now, but also as an Indian. We will lose out to other countries that are emphasizing STEM. And I think for the U.S. economy and for the U.S. next generation, it's super important. I'm not the only one speaking about this. I know Tim Cook at Apple, Satya Nadella at Microsoft, many of the, the seasoned executives uh, in this world industry are saying the same thing. So that's also something. And one aspect of STEM that we will be able to teach our kids is this notion of data, big data analysts. They don't need to necessarily know the details of artificial intelligence. But I remember, like, for example, the basics of everyone knowing, uh, you know, how to get ready for 
uh, how data is analyzed, the statistics, right? It's really important that, you know, not just basic statistics, what is percentages, probabilities, but getting to that reasonably semi-advanced statistics, everybody does. I'm surprised often, even in people that I interact with in the workplace, how much of that, how many of them didn't take a basic statistics class in high school or college to get educated in those foundations. I think I'm really passionate that the next generation get educated well on these basic elements of STEM. And if they choose to become an engineering and artificial intelligence scientist and go work at VMware or Google or Microsoft, that's okay, that's fine. But we've got to make sure that by the time they get to high school for sure, and then certainly through college, first, second year, they've got these fundamental principles well ingrained into their DNA and psyche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that completely agree. It's interesting. You know, I get the the privilege of traveling around the world to speak. So, you know, prior to COVID this year, I was in Singapore. I was in Europe several times, you know, so I, and before that I've spoken, you know, all over the world. And, you know, you get to see firsthand sort of what's happening where, which I always greatly appreciate and think is a huge gift. And what our global research shows, and this is, is fascinating. And, and the more you talk about stats and math, you know, somebody who runs a research firm, I get very fired up about that. So I'm, I'm trying not to get too fired up like we planned this because we did it. But the, uh, the thing that's really interesting is before we used to see really big variants by generation around the world. So if we were doing a study and we were looking at, let's just say Gen X and baby boomers, we'd see really dramatic differences around the world in terms of sort of views and so forth. Particularly when we look at access to technology, access to information, news, entertainment, you know, finances and so forth. But now what we see in our latest study is that Gen Z is the most similar generation we've ever had around the world. And that's due to cheap mobile technology. As you know, there's parts of the world now where you get a phone basically for free if you use it for payment. And so all of a sudden, advantages that certain countries might have had are not quite there in the way that they were before, not structurally, which I think is pretty interesting. And so all of a sudden, you know, as I travel around, you really get to see this firsthand. And, and also what we're seeing from a tech perspective that I know we have so many execs that listen uh, to me and, and certainly are familiar with you. One of our big discoveries is that for the first time, technology trends are rippling from the youngest to the oldest. And this is a massive shift. Historically, it's come from older generations or more affluent, and they would drive trends down, particularly consumer trends. But now we're seeing the youngest actually drive it up, which is really wild. And I think just goes to show the influence that they're going to have as they age up, particularly as they leverage what you just talked about. So I'm, uh, I'm right there with you and so fired up about what you're talking. So, so let me, let's go further then. Let's go, let's predict the future for a second. You get to see the coolest stuff, right? You go to Davos, you, you're rubbing shoulders with all these amazing thinkers out there. What is one prediction? Now, we've, we've heard about your sort of hopes and you and I both share that. What's one prediction you have about the future of data and business specifically? I would say, listen, my hope, I wouldn't have thought of, of COVID and the pandemic and vaccine at the beginning of this year because I was asked that same question at Davos at the beginning of the, the decade, 2020. But I hope that, you know, the learning from this is that, you know, I was talking to the CEO of Moderna. Uh, Stefan Bansal, who is at the cutting edge of vaccine research, as you know, and, and he will be, for your listeners, a speaker at uh, our major conference, VMworld, in a couple of years. But he was telling me, listen, if you look at the amount of uh, spending that governments put into nuclear uh, and defense programs and nuclear, you know, manufacturing facilities, uh, a lot of what we are seeing with, with COVID uh, and the, the, the technology to build vaccines for that is solvable. I mean, this is, he would say, it's an easier uh, virus to, to kind of, you know, um, combat than HIV. I mean, HIV, I mean, although it's not as infectious, uh, we still haven't completely eradicated. You can take medication to help you, but it's not completely eradicated. Um, so 
with this particular case, you can fight it. And, and um, it just means that once you find the way to sequence this and build, in his case, messenger RNA and all that stuff, you're able to manufacture it really quickly and then it get to hundreds of millions and billions of people quickly, right? And that it's not easy to do that quickly, but companies do a massive amount of manufacturing for things like defense systems and a variety of other things. And we can apply some of that budget that's applied to you know, protecting ourselves from these big nuclear events that are not likely going to happen. They could, but, you know, and to apply to this, the money exists in the world to once we find the science behind. So I predict that given what's happened this year, there will be a massive move by governments of the world. I hope the U.S. is at the cutting edge of this, but all the major G5, G10, G15 countries to learn from this and never let this happen again. I mean, it's almost like uh, kind of like 9-11, right? We'll never forget, never happen again. I hope that we will learn and we will never let this happen to the world where, you know, close to a million people, uh, you know, die and 15, 20 million are affected and some of them may be permanently even scarred from this. That's one. And I hope and I predict that will likely be something that's a focus for the next decade. Um, I, thought, I hope in similar fashion, and maybe there's some part of the prediction that some of the elemental forms of these chronic diseases will also likely get solved. I think the part that I'm much more comfortable predicting will happen if I watch the research in self-driving cars, um, you know, the ability to kind of take e-commerce and retail to a whole new level. I do think that uh, self-driving cars will become a phenomenon that everybody trusts for their, uh, you know, stop and go traffic. Okay. If you think about my commute to uh, VMware, I mean, I was working at home, but when I did, you know, as, as little as 15 minutes or as much as 30 minutes, depending on traffic. But those 15 or 30 minutes are more stressful than driving 15 or 30 minutes on the freeway, okay? Because it's like stop and go. And if I get distracted for a second, I don't hit the brake, I could rear end somebody else. That's a perfect, perfect, perfect place for self-driving capabilities because you're not driving fast. The risk of you getting in a death and the, the computer is always on. It's going to be more alert than you. And if I could just sit in the back of my car and read my email, watch a movie, relax, listen to music, and, and get to work, whether it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes, I hope that capability becomes part of everybody's life um, going forward. And I can see that happening. Would a person be comfortable um, trusting a self-driving car at 80 miles an hour on a freeway? Don't know. I wouldn't myself right now because I'm scared of an accident much more there. And I probably need to be alert there. But I think the notion of self-driving cars and things of those kinds will become something that becomes mainstream in every car, not just Tesla, and we trust it. And then I think finally for this shopping experience, uh, e-commerce and, and things of those kinds, I think the ability to get personalized gets so much faster with big data, right? The more that they know my shirt size, everything about me, and, and, and that just becomes a lot easier for everybody, every retailer to go one-to-one. Uh, and that was the dream 20, 30 years ago. In fact, I wrote a paper on that in terms of one-to-one -one marketing optimization in the in the mid-90s when, you know, there was very early in its thinking. But now I think those are all possible. All of those things, I think, will become mainstream. And I, I have no problem predicting that will happen. What I love about those predictions is there were some macro predictions and some that very much affect us individually, like dealing with traffic and getting the right shirt size. So <laughs> that... Is fantastic. I love it. And, and so my, my last question where I always like to end on is, what is your favorite leadership quote or saying or motto? Do you have a, like a mantra? Is there anything that, that you find really helps to guide you in your leadership role and just sort of how you are in the world? Anything jump out at you? Yeah, I mean, listen, I have a 10-minute video on YouTube, uh, um, you know, kind of, uh, Jason, one day I'll be doing a little TED Talks like you, but I always like these 10, 17-minute ones. 
but one that anyone can watch, which are the five leadership lessons that I have learned through my life. And, you know, any of your listeners are welcome to go on YouTube, Sanjay Poon and leadership lessons. But I'll pick one of them. Uh, I mean, there's five there, but I'll pick one of them that uh, that is really inspiring. And that's servant leadership. Uh, I think to me, the greatest leaders are people like Nelson Mandela, who said, you know, great leaders lead from the back okay, and let others feel like they're leading from the front. And often great leaders feel like they've always got to be the front of the room. And to me, the greatest joy is when you can take that sort of so-called uh, pyramid that sort of goes top down. You know, when you think about, imagine you had a, 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 a tree with, with branches and you had birds at various level, levels of that tree and the top bird sitting at the top was the command and control CEO bird. Unfortunately, most command and control structures are one where every bird looks up and all they see poop falling down, okay, from, their, from the sea level bird. And that's unfortunately what a lot of companies and organizations are. The folks at the leaf level of the organization just look up and they just see poop coming down, okay, from them. And I think us as leaders have to invert that pyramid. And, and the, 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 the chief among us needs to become the person who serves the, you know, let's say in my organization, the sales reps and the engineer, the person who's writing code or selling, who are those individual contributors whose day in their jobs is really hard and help them get obstacles out of the way. And when you move as a leader to that mindset of, you know, although you have, I mean, I'm a CEO of the company. So, okay, yeah, I have the title, I have the position, I have the respect, but my job is to make sure everyone uh, at the leaf level of the organization is enormously successful. And when you get joy out of doing that, you actually become an important, incredibly happy person because you're constantly in the spirit of kind of the, one of the bedtime story books I read to my kids, which is, you know, you can either be filling other people's bucket with joy, or you could be taking water out of their bucket and trying to please yourself, right? We're all made as naturally selfish people. But when you can fill other people's bucket with joy uh, by helping them, you actually are a happier person long-term. Uh, and we have to, in some fashion, because the world is made as a very selfish culture. We're born that way. We naturally become more and more selfish over time. We're taught to look out for ourselves. That's understandable. And part of sort of the evolutionary nature of human, uh, you know, kind has been that way for thousands and thousands of years. But I do think in the in, in the, the modern world is not built by, you know, how do you glor and become bigger and bigger yourself? It's by creating teams and helping an entire company. And that's really what motivates me. And I look at the leaders like Nelson Mandela, um, you know, um, uh, you know, any of those folks who have been Mother Teresa. Uh, folks who've really been inspirational beyond just the business leaders. And I think the modern day business leaders who are that way, Satya Nadella is of that kind too. They have a different mindset. It's not the command and control mindset. Um, and, and they are, I mean, I think um, the types of leaders that I try to model my own behavior with. And I think the more that we can create that leadership paradigm for our people, the better the world will be. Wow, I knew this was going to be a phenomenal interview, but I have not only been educated, I have been inspired. And I got to tell you, you have, you have put joy into my cup. So thank you for that. And I know all of our listeners feel the same way. Sanjay, what a huge gift to have you on Leading with Data. We're so grateful for you. The world's grateful for you and all that you bring. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jason. It's been a joy and pleasure and I enjoyed it too myself. Thanks for joining us on the Leading with Data podcast, brought to you by Oracle and Molecula. We look forward to seeing you on the next podcast.